The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. The Lord's Table was first uh, initiated by the Lord Jesus Christ on the night before he went to the cross. It was at that time that he was celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. And in the course of that meal, he took two elements from the meal and he invested them with new meaning. The Passover had its roots in the Old Testament at the time of the Exodus. The tenth plague that God brought upon the Egyptians in order to free the Jews from slavery in Egypt was the death of the firstborn. The Jews were told that the angel of death would come down and pass over the land. And those that uh, did not have the blood, of Christ, uh, the blood of the Lamb applied to the doorposts of the house would lose the life of the firstborn in the family. And so they, the Jews were instructed to take a lamb that was without spot or blemish and to sacrifice that lamb and to take the blood from that lamb that was without spot or blemish and to apply it to the doorpost and to the lintel of the house. And if you were to connect the dots, it would form a cross. And all of this was a picture of the future work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was that background that made the statement by John the Baptist so significant when he saw Jesus coming down to the Jordan for baptism. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so everything in the Passover meal was a picture of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus was about to go to the cross and he celebrated the Lord's table with his disciples, he took the unleavened bread and the cup and he invested them with new meaning because they had anticipated his person and work. He was going to give them a new meaning that looked back upon his completed work and on his person. So the bread represents the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's unleavened because leaven in the scripture is a picture of sin. Jesus Christ was born through virgin conception and birth. And because of that, he was born without sin. He did not receive a sin nature because there was not a human father involved. And because he did not have a human sin nature... He did not receive the imputation of Adam's original sin. And, of course, he lived his life without sin. Because of that, he was known as without sin, and the theological term is impeccability. He was impeccable. There was no sin found in him. And so the scripture says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us. So when we partake of the unleavened bread... It is a picture of our reception of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who was qualified by his sinlessness to go to the cross. 
And then the cup, which was wine in the Jewish uh, observance, the cup represented blood because of the color of the red wine, or we use grape juice. Because of its color, it represented, represented blood. And shed blood represented death. And the concept of death was related to spiritual death, which was the penalty for sin. When God created Adam, he placed him in the garden and said that you can eat from the fruit of all the trees in the garden except from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. Well, we know that on the day that he ate it, he did not die physically. He did not die physically for 930 years. But on the instant he ate from that tree, he died spiritually. Physical death was a consequence of his spiritual death, so that there had to be a payment for sin, which was in kind. That means spiritual death for spiritual death. But the indication that that spiritual death payment was complete was the physical death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. So the blood is a representation of his spiritual substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. And when Jesus Christ was on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m., God the Father covered the earth in darkness so that men would not look upon the agony of the Son of God as he hung on the cross, and God the Father imputed to him the sins of all mankind. So when we partake of the cup, it is a picture of the fact that we have accepted or taken in or received the death of Christ on our behalf. So that participation in the Lord's table is a continuous reminder of the fact that we have accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. The Lord's table is for anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not to be restricted by church membership or any other factor other than the fact that you have put your faith alone in Christ alone, for it is a visible testimony of the fact that you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Furthermore, we know from what the Apostle Paul wrote the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, that in the early church they came to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. That was because they had unconfessed sin in their life and they came for the purpose of just fulfilling their own lust. In the early church they had what they called a love feast or a They had a full meal along with the Lord's table. They would eat a meal together and conclude it with the Lord's table. It was a time of fellowship and a time of celebration in the body of Christ to recall and to be reminded of what Jesus Christ had done for them on the cross. But because they served a meal and because they had wine, the Corinthians would come and they just drank too much wine, ate too much food, and used it as an opportunity to have an orgy. So the Lord said, or so Paul said, that because they came in an unworthy manner, there was divine discipline on the congregation. And so his correction was that we were to examine ourselves before we come, come to the Lord's table to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to worship the Lord through the Lord's table, and to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, confess any known sin in your life to God the Father. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, 
God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So at the instant we confess our sins to the Lord, we are cleansed, we're forgiven, we are restored to fellowship, we recover the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and we are ready to partake of the Lord's table. We're going to bow our heads together and have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'm going to ask uh, Doug Daly if he would please return thanks for the uh, bread. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We thank you for the privilege of commemorating that this evening. We thank you for the immeasurable riches which uh, you demonstrated in your love on the cross. Jesus Christ demonstrated through his uh, saving work on the cross, which we can use uh, as an example for living our spiritual lives. We pray as we uh, celebrate the communion for your blessing on this as we honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. As our Lord ate the Passover meal with his disciples, he came to the bread, and he broke the bread, and he passed it out to the disciples. And he said, This is my body which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. I'm going to ask Doug Carn if he'd please return thanks for the cup. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to gather together to celebrate the Lord's table. As we take the cup, we pray that you'll keep us focused on the blood of Christ, which represents his substitutionary spiritual death, and that he that knew no sin was made sin as a substitute for us. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It is our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. Our Lord then took the third cup, which was the, called the cup of redemption. He said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood which is given for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Let's stand together and we'll sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's bow our heads together and open in prayer. Father, we do thank you for all that you have done for us, that as the Creator God, you have created us in your image and in your likeness to represent you. But even after the fall into sin, you have provided a redemption solution through our Lord Jesus Christ, and that in your magnificent plan, you have devised a plan of salvation that satisfies your righteousness and your justice that is motivated by your love and is totally compatible with your integrity, that this salvation is not at all based upon who we are or what we do, but it is based on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. Father, we pray that tonight as we continue our study and understanding of what the Scripture teaches us about yourself, that, you may gain, that we may gain a greater insight and appreciation for who you are, and that it may drive us more deeply into your word to discover your character, your attributes, and to deepen our relationship with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this evening we're in our fourth installment of a series on the basics of Christianity that I'm entitling The Foundation for Life. And the foundation for life is a sort of a play on words because the basis for life in the Scripture is truth. And the Hebrew word for truth is based on an interesting word group. Uh, it's based on a word group, as you see on the slide on the overhead down in the lower section, that uh, is part of which is the word emet, which means firmness, faithfulness, or stability. It is frequently translated truth because truth is that which has the idea of stability, certainty, and that which provides a foundation. Now, this idea of foundation, as I pointed out last time, is seen in the way this word is used, or a form of this word is used, in 2 Kings 18.16. It's translated doorpost. Actually, it's a form of the noun amona. It has the same basic root as emmet, and it has to do with describing that foundation pillar or post on which those enormous doors on the Solomonic Temple were hung. And just as these pillars supported the doors, so truth is a support for life. Now, I got an interesting question the other day that may occur to some of you. I don't know what translations you use. And that was somebody picked up on the fact that, that there's a distinction in, in the NIV, the New International Version, that in a number of the verses I used last time related to the truth of God, they translated in the NIV, they translated this word emmet with the word faithfulness. What's interesting in Hebrew is that in the mind of the Jews, there is this close, intimate connection in the ideas of truth, which means that which is a foundation, that which uh, gives stability to life, that which provides dependability. And so it was an easy transition to develop from the idea of truth and that which uh, is dependable and certain, the idea of dependability or faithfulness. So faithfulness is often reflected in the Hebrew form of this word, emona. 
It's also related to a verb in the Hebrew, aman, which is the word for belief. And it is the basis for our word amen. Whenever we pray and we close, we say amen, which is from the Hebrew form of the verb meaning I believe it. And belief is seen to be intimately connected with truth and dependability. So in the mind of the Jews, these these concepts were so uh, deeply related, so integrally related to one another, that they were all represented by the basic this basic word group. Well, when you get into doing uh, exegesis and translation in uh, Hebrew from the Old Testament, you have to make a number of, of decisions as to how you're going to translate these things. And, and uh, the question was raised, why is it that the New American Standard and the New Interna- excuse me, the New International, uh, the New American Standard, the uh, New King James Version, seem to consistently translate this word truth, but the NIV translates it faithfulness in about half the verses that I used last time. And the answer to that is because the, uh, basically without being too facetious, because the NIV followed a translation theory that I totally reject, as well as most firm conservative evangelicals reject. Now, it's true that many of the translators on the NIV were professors at Dallas Theological Seminary. Some of them were professors that I had when I was in seminary, and I would take, the, and others would take the opportunity to disagree with them at times. But one of the reasons the NIV is such a popular translation is they have a heck. Zondervan put out the NIV, and they have a masterful PR campaign. And they devised the NIV back in the mid-70s to be a complete package. And when they came out with the NIV, they produced a concordance that went with the NIV. And at the time, if you were around, the New American Standard was really gaining momentum at that time. But the, actually, there was no concordance published for the New American Standard until after the NIV had published a concordance. Or they came out at the same time. It was very close. And so the NIV had worked, the NIV Translation Committee or their editorial staff had worked out this deal where commentaries, concordances, and the NIV itself were all coming out at the same time. And so it was just mass market campaign. And so that's why so many people like the NIV. Most people don't ever get exposed to translation theory or why there are these differences. And I'll probably cover this at some later stage in this, in this series. But I had a, an Old Testament professor had his doctorate in Hebrew not only from Dallas but also from a you know, small little university over in London called Cambridge. And Dr. Ross served on one of the translation committees. And the way they translated the NIV was they would, have, uh, they would divide up the verses among various uh, groups of scholars. And then these scholars would sit down and they would make their case for their translation and then they would come back and their committee would look at it. And let's say this committee was assigned 15 chapters in Genesis. And they would debate among themselves what the best translation would be. And then they would vote on it. And then they, after they voted on the best translation, they would take it, to, it would go to the next higher committee. And then they would vote on it. And Dr. Ross used to say that there were many times in the book of Genesis, where he wanted to put a little footnote in the margin and say, this is the Word of God by a vote of five to four. <laughs> and then the other aspect was they operated on a, on a translation theory known as dynamic equivalence. 
dynamic equivalence is a much more fluid, almost a paraphrase of a translation. It's not a direct word-for-word translation. Of course, whenever you move from one language to another, if you're bilingual or you've ever studied a foreign language, you know that there's a certain dynamic that goes into any translation. You don't translate literally word for word. It comes out too stilted and too wooden. So you have to bring it into the language. Well, the view that, uh, of translation that believes that you have a, a more rigorous uh, translation that's more literal is called formal equivalence. And the more you move away from that, you get into the realm of dynamic equivalence, and then if you push past dynamic equivalence, you get in the realm of paraphrase. A paraphrase is not based on the original Greek or Hebrew. A paraphrase is like the living Bible that was done by a Dallas Seminary grad by the name of Ken Taylor, who passed away just recently, and he wrote that for his children. He said back in the 50s, He couldn't read the King James Version to his kids, and they couldn't understand it, so he paraphrased it. He put it into modern language. He didn't translate it from the original. He just paraphrased the the King James translation. So, of course, if the King James had a poor translation, he paraphrased that, and that's why there were certain weaknesses with the living Bible. And paraphrases should never be used for study. And I, I really discourage people from even using the NIV because there's numerous places in the NIV where they're so interpretive in their translation of the Greek that they actually you lose all sight of the Greek text uh, altogether. For example, 1 Corinthians 3, which is a classic illustration. There are many places like this. You have the word sarkinos, which is the word for fleshly and uh, translated fleshly from the root sarks, meaning flesh, and it's translated worldly in the NIV. But worldly, the concept of that which is from the world, is based on the Greek word cosmos, which is what we've studied in the past. So how they got worldly out of sarkinos is their theology. And so they're interpreting the text. In fact, my friend uh, Wayne House, who uh, was a general editor for the uh, Thomas Nelson Study Bible, which some of you have, and has been the academic dean at a couple of major uh, theological seminaries, was a professor at Dallas Seminary for a while, and now is the uh, founder of Oregon Theological Seminary. Wayne likes to call it the NIV is a not a translation, it's a commentary. So those are the ideas that we have to be aware of when we come to translations, that these are often reflect a, a translator's theology. And as Dr. Bob Thomas out at the Master's Seminary says, when there's a level of ambiguity in the Greek or in the Hebrew, that ambiguity needs to be preserved in a literal translation so that you can then leave it up to the pastor to interpret the text. It is not the translator's job to interpret the text when he translates, but to translate from the original language. So those are just some reasons that I, uh, I discourage. Now, the NIV Study Bible is a great study Bible. The notes are great. It's well put together. I mean, whoever the ch- general editors were, and I knew some of them. In fact, I took second-year Hebrew under Ken Barker, who I believe was the uh, editor-in-chief of the NIV. And Dr. Barker was a great, uh, what I call a great language mechanic. And what's the problem you get in seminaries, you get some of these men who are great grammarians. They're great mechanics, but they're lousy theologians. 
And, uh, and you may wonder how that can be. Well, just that's not their area of specialty. They do a great job with technical grammatical issues, but they don't put the whole text together. I'm fond of saying they're great mechanics, but you don't want to put them behind the wheel. And that's a problem with some of these guys. And so uh, the NIV has definite weaknesses that have been pointed out by a number of people over the years. And because of these problems and because of the fluidity there, you'll run into this. And that's why the question was raised, why is it that this word seems to be translated faithfulness in the NIV when it's translated truth in the uh, King James and New American Standard? New American Standard and the King James have a more precise translation theory lying behind their methodology, which is why I recommend both of those translations. Okay. We saw last time, and we looking at this study, from the vantage point of truth, that Jesus had an encounter with Pontius Pilate just before he went to the cross. It was his final trial. And in that, Jesus said, those who are of the truth hear my voice. And Pilate dismissively, skeptically, cynically said, what is truth? This is a well-known interchange between Jesus and our Lord, but it raises the issue that is so contemporary, and that is that people today question whether or not there is truth. It's different from a generation ago or two generations ago where the influence from modernism really led people to question, is this the truth? But today we live in a time when when many people question whether there is such a thing as a universal truth. And this is what causes the Bible to be such a point of friction in our culture today is because the Bible takes a stand that there is one and only one truth, that God is the source of all revelation and God is the source of all creation and He is the one who defines truth. So we're looking at the essence of God from this vantage point of truth. And I reference Psalm 86:15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. That relates to his attribute of love, which we studied last time. Slow to anger. That's relation to his justice. And abundant in loving kindness and truth. So truth is one of the core attributes in the essence of God. Now, as I pointed out last time, we'll divide the essence of God into two attributes, personal and infinite. God, the God of the Bible, is a personal God. He is, a, he is not some force. He is not some, uh, something mechanistic that's out there in the universe, but He is a person. And as a person, we can have relationship with Him. And God created man in His image and likeness so that man can have a relationship with God, can know God, can communicate with God. God can communicate with man. And He designed man in His image so that man can receive and understand divine communication. Man, the only reason man thinks that it's fuzzy that it's not understandable is because man clouds it either because of his sin or because of his negative volition. He is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. God is a personal God. And we looked at the five attributes on the left as relating to this personal dimension of God, that he is the sovereign creator. That is, as the sovereign, he is the one who creates in the universe. And as the Creator, He is the one who defines the nature of reality. Now, we may not like it. 
We may want to question why is this a certain way. And this is why you have those illustrations in the Scripture that talk about the pot saying to the, uh, saying to the one who is shaping the pot, saying to the uh, one who is the potter, why do you make me this way? God has made reality the way it is. He is the one who sets the rules and establishes all of the laws, both in terms of spiritual laws as well as physical laws. We looked at the fact that um, as we go through this, I just want to hit some of the verses we looked at last time. Psalm 146.6 connects his attribute as sovereign creator to truth. He is the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. He keeps truth Forever. That means He preserves His Word. He's not going to be changing things. What we'll see as we study this is that all of these attributes of God are interconnected. They relate to each other. If we were to diagram it in a little more visually correct way, we would have a bunch of interlocking uh, circles, a bunch of interlocking uh, three-dimensional uh, circles that all relate to one another and all consistent with one another. So in his sovereignty, he is righteous. And his, so- his sovereignty relates to his omniscience and omnipotence. His sovereignty relates to his immutability. All of these are interconnected. But we break them apart for the purpose of instruction, for the purpose of coming to understand who God is and focusing on different aspects of his character. And this is true of any person. Many of us have different qualities and characteristics. We have different abilities and talents. And God has made us to be complex, and God is infinitely more complex than we are. Nevertheless, we can understand many things about him. We can know true things about him, but we can never know him exhaustively. And that seems to be a contradiction to some people. And what it means is we can't know everything there is to know about God. But we can know with certainty some things about God that He has revealed to us about Himself. He is righteous. This is the standard of His character. He sets the standard. He is absolutely righteous and perfect. From the Hebrew word tzedakah, which is also related to his justice. Righteousness has to do with the standard of his character, and justice has to do with the application of that standard to his creatures. We looked at Psalm 119.42, that his everlasting righteous, that his righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. What two attributes are there? Righteousness is connected to his eternality. And then it concludes, and your law is truth, so that that, his standard that comes out from his righteousness is perfectly true. Uh, He is just, our third attribute. This applies to the way he treats his creatures. It's always in accordance with his perfect righteousness, so that while we look at the world around us and we see things that that are very difficult for us to fully comprehend, we see uh, evil, we see people who are seemingly innocent Suffer a tremendous, uh, suffer in tremendous ways. We look at things such as the Jewish Holocaust during World War II, and we look at uh, babies who are abused by parents and, and physically abused and sexually abused. We wonder how can a loving God allow this to happen? And so we raise questions, but ultimately we have to go back to the fact that God is just, and because He is omniscient and knows all the facts, that he is, and because he is sovereign, he is in control, that there is an ultimate higher good 
toward which everything is moving. Genesis 18.25 tells us, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And how shall we as a creature question God's justice? Because we know less than one-tenth of one percent of all the knowable information, and God knows all the knowable in his omniscience, so he is making decisions in his uh, rule and administration of history that are consistent with his righteousness and his justice. Who are we to question him? That's really what the book of Job is all about. Job is saying, why am I suffering like this? And God says, did you make everything? Who are you to question me? Just trust me. And that's the issue for the believer. In Psalm 89.14, we see the connection of righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. So we see how righteousness, justice, love, and truth are interconnected in several verses in the psalm. So we move to our next category, which is the love of God. And the love of God must not be defined in human terms. It's very difficult to define the love of God. And the best definition that I've been able to develop is that the love of God means that in concordance with His His righteousness and His justice, God seeks the absolute best for His creatures. Because he is omniscient, he knows what the absolute best is. Because he is perfectly righteous, he can't seek for anything less than their best. And because of his love, he desires to have that relationship with man and to provide the best for his creatures. Psalm 117.2 says that his loving kindness is great toward us and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Psalm 57.10, your loving kindness is great to the heavens, your truth to the clouds. A couple of other verses, concluding with John, 1 John 4.8, saying simply that God is love. This characterizes everything, relates to all of the various attributes of God. And then lastly, we looked at the fact that he was truth. Uh, he was absolute truth, and that truth is the foundation of all the attributes of his of his character. Psalm 117.2 again, His loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. John 3.33 in the New Testament says that he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. And John 8.26, I have many things to say to you, Jesus said, and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. Now, before we move on, I want to say a couple of other things about the fact that God is truth. By the very nature of his creation, God determines reality. He defines the nature of reality, and he communicates that to us. God has not left us here in some sort of cosmic guessing game. He's communicated his word to us, and because he is truth... The revelation of himself is truth. God's word of truth, therefore, is the foundation on which stability and faithfulness are established. Truth itself is a word that means that there's a foundation of certainty that we can depend on. Everything in life may change, but there is a foundation that is always true, never changes, doesn't shift from generation to generation or from culture to culture. It is a universal overarching truth that gives meaning and definition to everything else 
in life. This idea of truth being that upon which we can depend is at the core of the idea of truth. So that for the Jews, truth is inseparable from the idea that God is dependable and faithful. And because God is dependable and faithful, he has communicated the basis for that dependability and faithfulness to us in his word. This idea of truth is then applied to the concept of love. How does truth relate to love? Well, love is always dependent upon virtue, that which is righteous, that which is true, that which is accurate. Love is devoid of error. Therefore, we have to recognize that divine love is based on something in his character, that is, his righteous standard, that gives it perfection. It is based on something stable, which means that that love is not going to shift. It's not going to turn. It's not going to be fluid. It's not going to vacillate. It's going to be consistent. So we can always rely, even though we fail, we know that God never fails, and his love is always going to be consistent. So love, true love, must be based on truth and not falsehood. Because God is truth, his love is dependable and reliable. Because he is truth, he can love truly, and his love is always true, and it contains no deception and no falsity. As we move from that left side, the personal attributes of God, we're now on the right side where we talk about the infinite attributes of God. Infinite means without bound, without limitation. And God is not only personal God where he is able to relate to us individually and in a sense almost reduce himself to to be able to talk to an individual. We see that the infinite God uh, comes and Uh, presents himself to Adam and the woman in the garden and walks with them and talks with them. And so not only does he have this this infinite capacity, but he's also personal. This is in contrast to the uh, many of the false gods developed over the years that just uh, have impersonal force out there that are not personal. So God, and then in the other systems of mythology, for example, ancient Greek and Roman mythology, uh, Babylonian mythology, the gods are intensely personal, but they're not infinite. They're just sort of big individuals. They're like Dr. God and Mr. Man. They're just a, uh, men who are just blown up into sort of a, a Superman kind of thing, but they're not infinite. They really can't control the universe. They really are not absolute in an ultimate sense. They're just as much a part of nature as anything else. In fact, the old nature religions, the fertility religions of the ancient world, are just been taken over by modern science and baptized under the guise of evolution. And it's easy to see that transition through what has been called the chain of being that has been promoted from Aristotle all the way down to the present. And it just exhibits that God is just another part of this whole scale of nature, this scale of being man's down here and God's just a little higher up. But what we see in the Scripture is that God is the Creator and He is set apart, uh, completely distinct from the creation. And this is based on these attributes of infinity. The first is His eternality. This is infinity, infinity 
with respect to time. God is not limited with respect to time. Uh, Time does not apply to God. He knows all of human history, all of the succession of events in, in human history intuitively, instantly. He perceives everything all at one time. So he is eternal. There's no succession of events in God. There's no past, present, or future. Everything is uh, eternally present to him. Psalm 90, verse 2 reads, From everlasting to everlasting thou art God. When we think about eternality, we relate it to God's sovereignty and we recognize that He is eternally sovereign. All of the attributes of God are eternal. They are equally true of Him throughout all of His eternal existence. As righteousness and justice, we see that He is eternally righteous and just. There never was a time when God was not righteous, when God was not just. So eternality relates to every dimension of his character. Then we have his omniscience, God's omniscience. This is God's this is infinity applied to God's knowledge. Now omniscience of the omniscience of God is one of the most comforting dimensions of his uh, character. And his omniscience, we know that God not only knows everything that will happen in history, but he knows everything that could happen in history. He knows everything that has happened. He knows everything that will happen. He knows all of the possibilities, all of the permutations. There's no limitation to God's knowledge. Furthermore, we know that God knows the actual events as well as the possible events. As a result, from God's omniscience, He is able to provide the perfect solution for human sin and for any problem that comes up in human history. Because God is omniscient, we know that he is also truth. Because without omniscience, the knowledge of everything, he could not provide a universal truth. But because he knows everything and every permutation, every possibility... God is able to provide that universal umbrella that covers every potential, every possibility. Therefore, his knowledge is absolute and his knowledge is exhaustive. Because, as we'll see, God doesn't change, we know that he doesn't gain in knowledge. God never learns anything. There's nothing that's going to happen in history that's a surprise or a shock to God. That means that in your life, when you sin, when you fail, you don't surprise God. Now, you may surprise yourself, you may shock your friends, it may be pretty astounding, but it didn't surprise God. In eternity past, God knew that you were going to do that. And not only that, but God, because of his omniscience, because he knew that you would commit those sins, was able to devise a plan of salvation that completely and totally paid the price for all those sins. So omniscience is also an answer to the question of the security of our salvation. If anyone says that they can lose their salvation, what they're basically saying is, I just committed a sin that God didn't know about in eternity past, and therefore he didn't provide a salvation solution for it. But the Bible says that in omniscience, God knows all the sins that we'll commit, and therefore Christ was able to pay for every single sin 
and human history. As I pointed out a minute ago, Scripture teaches that God not only knows the actual, He knows the possible. Now, that can really get your mind twisted around if you start thinking about all the conceivable permutations of what would have happened if I had slept 15 minutes later this morning and if I had taken this route to church instead of that route to church and what would have happened if I had stopped and gone to the grocery store and, and there was a robbery there. Yeah, I mean, we can just drive ourselves nuts thinking about all the what-ifs. But the fact is that God does know the answer to all the what-ifs. And we see this from a statement Jesus made in Matthew 11, verse 21. In Matthew 11, uh, 21, Jesus said, If the mighty works which were done in you, speaking of Capernaum, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. See, he recognizes that Tyre and Sidon were judged because of their idolatry in the past. But he also recognizes that under certain conditions, different responsive would, would have been, uh, would have been uh, brought about. Now, that raises a lot of interesting questions for us I don't want to go into right now, but it demonstrates that God knows all the various contingencies and possibilities. Furthermore, as the sovereign creator God, Scripture says that he knows all the stars, calls them all by name, according to Psalm 147, verse 4. He knows the number of the hairs on your head, according to Matthew 10:30. He knows all the works of his creation, according to Acts 15:18. Now, when we connect that with his immutability, we know that his knowledge never changes. He never learns anything. He never forgets anything. He never acquires any knowledge. He knows everything throughout all of eternity. And the practical application for that is it gives a foundation for certainty in our spiritual life. We know that we're saved. We know that we're not going to do anything that will surprise God, that wasn't paid for on the cross. And we know that when we're living our life and we face various crises in life, whether it has to do with death or loss or disappointment, whatever the situation may be, we know that God knew all about it in eternity past, and therefore He was able to provide the perfect solution to that problem in eternity past. He designed everything to be the way it is and so that all of the systems would work in perfect harmony with one another. And he built into the system enough flexibility to be able to handle the chaos that was introduced by sin. This is a God that goes far beyond anything that we can ever fully understand or comprehend. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Psalm 139, 1 through 6 is a basis scripturally for understanding the omniscience of God. The psalmist says, introduces the psalm by saying, For the chief musician, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Not most of them, not some of them, but all of them. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And you have hedged me behind and before. Because of his omniscience, he can provide a perfect protection for us. You laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. 
I cannot attain unto it. Well, not only is God omniscient, which means He is all knowledge, but He is omnipotent, which means He is all-powerful. It's infinity with respect to His power or ability. Psalm 33, 6 reads, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all of their hosts, that is, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Verse 7, He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap, and He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Why? Because He is all-powerful. If He was able to create everything in the universe, then there is nothing that could be impossible for God. Therefore, we must fear Him in the sense of respect and awe and admiration and obedience. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. When we connect His omnipotence, his, the fact that He is all-powerful, with His omniscience, the fact that He knows everything, and with His immutability, the fact that He never changes, we recognize that God has the power to provide the perfect solution for us. He has the ability and the power to provide a perfect salvation, a salvation that takes into account every dimension of human failure and human sin, and to take into account every sin and failure in our lives so that He can provide that perfect salvation. Then we come to the next attribute, His omnipresence. The fact that God is present everywhere. Omnipresent is infinity with respect to space. It means that God is present to every point of His creation at every moment in time. Now, you have to get that right. Omnipresence means that God is present to every point of His creation, is equally present to every point of His creation at every moment in time, that he is just as fully present to Jim Myers over in Kiev, Ukraine, as he is to you sitting right here in Houston, Texas. He doesn't have a little bit of him over here and some of him over here, but he is fully present and equally fully present to every point in the universe at the same instant. Now, omnipresence must be distinguished from pantheism. Pantheism teaches that everything is God, but Omnipresence teaches that God is everywhere. He is not in everything. That's also known as panentheism, that God is in everything. God is infinitely present to His universe. Nothing can escape His full presence. So we read in Psalm 139. Incidentally, Psalm 39 is one of the great meditations in the Scripture on the attributes of God. Psalm 139.7 and following says, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, that is the highest place possible, you're there. But if I make my bed in Sheol, that is in the grave, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, or if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, in other words, no matter where I go to the farthest east or down into the deepest sea, God is there. Psalm 139.10, Even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. So we have the three omni-characteristics. God is omniscient, all knowledge. God is omnipotent. He has all power, the power to do whatever He wills to do. And He is um, um, 
omnipresent. He is fully present to every point in space at every point in time. And that brings us to our last characteristic, which is his immutability. God is immutable. Immutability means that God never changes. Jesus Christ, we're told in Hebrews, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. Now, let's make sure we understand what immutability means. It doesn't mean that God doesn't adapt His plan to human decisions. It means that God in His character never changes. His character and His Word are perfectly stable. He can be always counted on. His Word never changes. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is always stable. We can always rely upon Him. This is why He can be always truth. Truth, immutability, love, righteousness, justice give us a a view of an eternally stable God, so that whenever we go through crisis in life and everything just seems in chaos and out of order and disarray, we have one place to go. He is our rock. He's our refuge. He's our stability. Hebrews 6.17, in the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. His purpose in human history is unchangeable. From the Garden of Eden to the uh, future new heavens and new earth, God's purpose never changes. And then we come to our last attribute. Let me get past this slide. Our last slide. I thought I had the verse up there. Malachi 3.6. God says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Even when we fail... God never fails. Even when we're false, God is always true. Even when things change, God's Word never changes. So it is always true. It is always right. No matter how the centuries change, no matter how the civilizations move, no matter how the cultures change, God never changes. And His truth is the same for Africans as it is for Asians, as it is for Russians, as it is for ancient Babylonians or modern Christians. And therefore, we can always go to his word to find solutions for every situation in life. When we look at truth as it's related to the character of God, it gives us that source of of stability, that source of certainty that relates to everything in life. An application of this goes to his sufficiency. This is why God's grace is sufficient for everything. This is why the cross of Christ is sufficient to deal with every sin. This is why we don't need to look outside of the Scripture for solutions to our problems because God's Word is absolute and eternal truth. Let's bow our heads together in closing prayer. Father, we do thank you that you are the God of truth and that as a God of truth you have revealed yourself truly to us so that the issue is not what we think about you or what we feel about you. The issue is what have you revealed about yourself and that you have revealed yourself in an inerrant and infallible scripture. 
and that we are to apply the normal rules of interpretation and study to your word, that we can come to know you and come to understand you, and that you have chosen this as the means by which we can come to a relationship with you. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that you would make take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for every single sin that you will commit. There is no sin too great for the grace of God. There is no failure that was unknown by God. And every sin in human history was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be found in us. The instant you believe Jesus died for you, you have eternal salvation. And at that instant, God, the Father, imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, declares you to be justified, and then regenerates you. And all of this happens in a nanosecond of time when you trust Christ as Savior. And at that instant, you are adopted into the royal family of God, given eternal life, and these gifts can never be rescinded. There's nothing you or I can do to ever cause God to take this back. We have eternal salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that you've revealed about yourself, understand your character, understand your attributes, and to understand how these relate to the everyday issues we face in life, the problems, the pressures, the stress, that we can take these attributes and apply them to the situations of our life. And the result will be that we will relax, we will realize the peace that you provide for us, and that we can trust more fully in you and in the outworking of your plan for our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.